It's lovely to be with you today. The rector has a speaking engagement somewhere else, and so he's off doing that, and I get to be with y'all, and I'm looking forward to it. We're into Acts 14, and there's a lot of geography today, so I brought my picture. So the thing I'm worried about is that my, my computer has screensaver, and I'm worried like after five minutes it's going to bug out. So if I keep jumping down and wiggling the mouse, don't... Y'all don't have to tell everybody that's how it was today, but it might be that way because I want y'all to see this because I think it's going to help for you to visualize, right? So you just finished with um, Chris up in this, see the Antioch way up there? That's why he's been saying Antioch and Pisidia because that's a whole different Antioch than Antioch Syria, which is the one that we're most familiar with, right? That's when we hear Antioch, that's kind of what we're thinking about. But on this missionary journey, they've come up here into Asia Minor, which now we would know as Turkey, right? And that's where they are on this first missionary journey. So I wanted y'all to see that, that Antioch in Pisidia is where we're starting into today's story from. That's where you ended up in last chapter. Now this I want to tell you about, this is the rector's pointer. And he keeps it in his drawer in the sacristy because we have pictures of the setup of the church in the sacristy. And when we're doing special services or anything unusual is happening, he gets out the pointer. He says, okay, you need to be standing there and you need to be standing there. And when we do this, you go around and you do this and everything. So this is the second time I've stolen the rector's pointer to use for a class. And I'm kind of liking it. It gives me a weird sense of power. So be careful. I'm, you know, I'm kind of feeling my oats over here with my big pointer. All right, so um, the previous area that Paul and Barnabas had been, Antioch of Pisidia that we just talked about, it was kind of known for its crime. It was considered an unsafe part of the Roman Empire in which to travel. And Paul even later wrote about the issue that they had with robbers in this area. So in 2 Corinthians, there are some lines where Paul's talking about what a hard time he had with the kind of lowlifes in this area, right? Um, but now they're coming to Iconium. And so Iconium is the capital of the province of Galatia. It was, it's a wealthy city, and it was well, a well-watered, fertile area along the Roman road. Um, and Iconium is approximately 85 miles from Antioch of Pisidia that we just talked about. And all of this is in current-day Turkey. So you see Iconium kind of centered up there. That's where we're getting to today. That's where we're heading to. So Paul and, Paul and Barnabas seem to have their proclamation pattern down. They, um, when they come to a new town, the first thing they do is they go to um, the Jews, to the synagogue, and they proclaim the gospel there. And so let's talk about why the fact that they start at the synagogues is important. The Jews are the recipients of, God's, of the promise of God that through them, God would bless the whole world. The good news is that in Jesus Christ, this blessing of the world through Judaism has been fulfilled. So more than that, in Jesus, we are all reconciled um, to God. We have been forgiven. And Jesus is a foretaste of the hope of God's consummated world in God's time. So this is all the significance of um, Jesus and it, it's, it's the significance of this is the fulfillment of the promise to the Jews. So because the promise was to the Jews, they, whether they're in Jerusalem or where they're spread out in the Roman Empire, they're the folks that needed to hear the message. 
the Jews in the diaspora, which is what we call, you know, the Jews that were out from um, Israel, from that area, uh, were being invited in, as they got this news of the gospel to embrace the fulfillment of what they had been looking for for all these years. So these are the first folks that the disciples go to because they already know the story and the disciples show up and give them the good ending to the story, right? That's kind of the deal. It's like, yes, you know the story and this is how it, 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 it plays out. Um, both Jews and Greeks come to believe through their testimony. But the Jews who don't believe, who are not convinced, stir up the folks um, that are listening to Paul and Barnabas do their testimony. And so we're, they say, we're told in this portion, this is verses 1 to 7 in chapter 14, we're told that they're saying poisonous things, that they're poisoning them about Paul and Barnabas, right? In this... Um, failed backlash that ultimately loses the argument, we should hear a lesson that that which is true will always reveal itself. And that which is mean or ugly not only won't win the day, but also makes those who operate that way look small and desperate. So these poor guys, they're probably just doing their thing. They think they're protecting Judaism, but they're wrong. And, they're, and they kind of have hardened their hearts, and they're not willing to listen to this message, right, or consider that this might be the truth. And here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about these guys, and they're on the wrong side of the argument. So they forever have gone down as the guys who didn't hear the good news and didn't respond appropriately, right? They're on the losing team. And that's kind of what happens all the time when you're on the wrong side of truth. It might not happen in the first five minutes, but eventually that wins out. So, um, so I kind of was asking, I wonder what our witness is to the promise fulfilled today, right? So how would we, if, if, if Barnabas and Paul went out to see all of these synagogues out in the diaspora to let them know about the fulfillment of God's promise through Jesus Christ, if that was how they witnessed to the good news, how are we kind of doing that today? And what I thought about, which you will be very happy with because you're Episcopalians, that I think the best witness to faith is a life that has been transformed by that faith. So I, I don't think it's necessarily standing on a corner and yelling out and doing all of that kind of stuff. I think people are very attracted to anyone whose life seems to have um, a kind of foundation that gives them peace and understanding that they're part of something that's much bigger than themselves, uh, a grounding that keeps um, the normal day-to-day -day dramas of ups and downs from kind of impinging on our cool, all of that is, is kind of what comes to us when we really embrace um, the truth of who Jesus is and how he's working with our, in our lives, right? And that's very attractive to people. So I would say that that's, um, that's the, the grace of a witness. And so in this case, kind of getting back to Paul and, and Barnabas, it must have been a powerful thing for these folks in Iconium to see men who were so moved by what they believed that they left their comfortable homeland simply to travel parts of the empire to share this experience of their belief. Um, and so if you compare what they're doing, this kind of energized getting out there, um, being proactive with this message to the religious officials who are kind of, that at the places that they're going to, that are kind of, 
fat and happy and under the current system and they kind of know who's up and who's down and who's got the power and who doesn't and they're in a good place and they really don't want that messed with so don't come in and tell us some story because it's really going to mess with my day-to-day -day life right so you can see how that would have been a draw to folks who had not um, been uh, the recipient of that kind of excited, energized message before. So then the Jewish leaders start name-calling these guys. And, and just like our kids would do today, like we would do today, if, a th if authority starts harping about something, how bad something is, you're a little more interested in hearing more about it, right? You're like, well, wait a minute, that sounds kind of interesting then if you don't want me to know that. And so it kind of, so, so God used all of this to prepare the soil for the gospel to be received. He used our very real human tendencies um, to, to show his message in an even greater contrast against the status quo. And I wanted to read you, gosh, I hope I'm going to be able to do it without my readers. I want to read you a highlighted portion from the Acts uh, commentary that I guess are y'all, is, is that something that members of this class get and read theoretically? Okay, okay. So, so each time I lead the class for the rector, I, um, Susan is kind enough to copy the pages that pertain to what I'm going to do. So I, I liked this. I wanted to read this to you about this whole, um, what am I doing here? How are we telling the story, right? We should be prepared to think it all through so we can tell the story that people know is their story, the one they always knew they wanted to hear. And we have to tell it so that, like Paul telling the story of Israel, it ends with Jesus. Not artificially or like a conjurer pulling a rabbit out of a hat, but so that he appears as what and who he is, the truly human one, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the living bread through whom all our hungers are satisfied. Oh, I saw some click. Okay. And of course, it's no good at all simply trying to say it. We have to live it. Ding, 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 ding. That's what I just said, right? I love that. We have to create and sustain communities where this life is being lived in such a way that when we speak of it, we, ought, we are obviously telling the truth. This is the hard part. And so that's our call as disciples, right, is to live into the good news, not just to say, oh, I accept that. I'll sign the bottom line. Just put that on a piece of paper, and I'll sign it, and I'm good. We're good to go. No, it's about like letting that permeate and change your life. And in that, that is what's so attractive to those who don't have that in their lives. And the community of faith is the place where you come to help learn how to live into that or live more into that, to continue to grow into that. In the case of Iconium, it's kind of a long, hard scrum. The folks of the city are kind of split. Some believe the apostles and some believe the Jews who are spreading the so-called poison that we heard about. And throughout all of this, Paul and Barnabas continue to speak boldly for the Lord, is what we're told. And so after some time of this tug of war um, on the message in Iconium, Paul and Barnabas get word that the leaders of both the Gentiles and the Jews have formulated a plan to stone them. And so um, they flee to Lystra and Derby, which we're going to talk about, cities in that same region, and they continue to proclaim the good news. And so we're going to move on now to uh, Lystra and Derby. We're going to start with Lystra. But those are about, um, there's Ly you know, it's interesting. I don't, did I tell you how far Iconium was from Antioch? I don't know if I did. But 
Okay, did it say that in y'all's book? Okay, that's what it says there, because um, this is saying that I have down that Lystra is about 30 miles from Iconium, and then I think Derby's going to be about 60 miles from there. So visually, that looks kind of right, but the, the distance from Antioch to Iconium doesn't, it looks like it's longer, but we won't, we won't split hairs. We're just going to go with it. Okay. So, Paul, okay, so anything about that first section on Iconium before we get into Lystra? All right. So, Paul and Barnabas show up in Lystra, and there is no synagogue. So, so this throws them a curveball, right? Because their pattern has been to start at the synagogue and convert all they can and then kind of go out from there and start doing it more in the street. Kind of if they're rejected there, then they move on to the Gentiles. So Lystra is the first place in scripture where the apostles reached the Gentiles with the gospel without approaching them first through the common ground of Judaism. So that's a big step because when you come in and you're speaking to the synagogue and you're a Jew, you were a Jew, you still are a Jew, um, you're just a Christian Jew, um, you're starting from the same base story. So you know what their story is, and you know what they're thinking. And so you've got that common ground all the way ready to go. So this now, we're starting to see them transition to not ha having to start their proclamation, not from having that common ground of the Jewish story, right? So they have a bit of a captive audience in one man who is sitting and listening to them because he cannot walk. So even if he wanted to get up and leave, he couldn't leave. And he hasn't been able to walk since birth is what we're told. And Paul, it, says, it, says, it tells us Paul perceived that he had the faith to be healed. So he told the man, stand up on your feet. And the man got up and he began to walk. And so I think it's really interesting this point that Paul perceived that this man had faith to be healed. And, um, you know, this is kind of consistent with the story that we get in Matthew. And I, th I think there's, there's other versions of it in the other Gospels. But in Matthew, we're told that Jesus is unable to heal or perform signs of power because of other people's unbelief. So he goes to his hometown, and he kind of gets a bat, and he, it says he's unable to perform these things because of their unbelief. That's what we're told. It's uh, chapter 13, verse 58 in Matthew. So these two passages, what we just read about Paul and here, would kind of tell us that our faith has a role to play in our healing or in our ability to be vessels of or witness Jesus' power, Right? But this is a problematic theology that has been used to harm people for years. So when people of faith are unable to be healed from their infirmities, um, when folks with mental health issues are unable to will themselves into wellness, when a child dies or um, after dozens or hundreds or thousands of people have prayed for their healing, we have a history in the church of these folks being made to feel that their faith wasn't strong enough. And if their faith had just been stronger, these things wouldn't have happened. If they believed more, if they'd prayed more, if they'd really heard God's instruction to them more, there could have been a different outcome. And I would say that our trust in God, um, our faith, which really is trust in God, that's the, they're the same thing, does play a role in our healing and that we cannot know wholeness 
without giving ourselves totally over to God. And this is true um, for a loved one that we give over to God, trusting in God's care and love for them as well. And so I would say that in the end, we are all healed. It might not always look pretty, it might not always be pain-free, but in the end, our trust in God, our faith, is that none of these circumstances will separate us from God and that God will make us whole, that in the end, God will make us whole and that God will make our loved ones whole. And that as we read in Revelation, that every tear will be wiped away and crying and sorrow and pain will be no more, right? Well, this man, he's healed, and he's walking around town, and everyone sees him, and knowing that this man has been crippled since birth, they're convinced that Paul and Barnabas, who healed him, were gods that have now come among them. And they're not just random gods. No, Barnabas is Zeus, and Paul is Hermes. So they're, they've attached to them certain Greek gods or um, mythical gods, right? And so there happens to be a Zeus temple on the edge of town. So remember, we're out in Gentile territory, right? So this is not unheard of. So we have a Zeus temple on the edge of town. The priest of the temple hears about these visiting gods, and he starts hauling out oxen and garland to offer as a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. So let me give you a little background here, and I think it was in y'all's reading if you did it. So Greek myth held that Zeus and Hermes had come to earth in the form of humans and that those who were hospitable to them were saved from destruction, but those who weren't hospitable for them were destroyed in a flood. And so these folks, they know the story about Zeus. There's a Zeus temple on the edge of town, right? And so they're thinking, we don't want Zeus to show up and not be hospitable and be destroyed, right? So these guys show up. They assume they've got the power of Zeus, that they're reincarnated Zeus, and so they're going to give them all of this homage. They're going to treat them with hospitality. So here Paul and Barnabas are telling folks why that their belief in other gods is wrong. There is one true God. It's the God of Israel. Let me tell you the story, how he's come now in Jesus Christ, reconciled us to himself. That's their story. It's like give up these other gods for that. So um, not only have they not heard that message that way, but now they're actually thinking that Paul and Barnabas are these gods, right? So um, it's a reminder that we can craft a message, but we can't always control how it's received. Folks will hear things in, the way, in ways that support what they already believe to be true. The Jews who don't accept Jesus as Messiah have got it wrong. And the folks who worship pagan gods have got it wrong. And so both of them kind of come out fighting, and that's what we're going to see. So when Paul and Barnabas figure out what's going on, they are appalled. They tear their garments, as you would do in Judaism when you're mourning something, when a real tragedy has happened. They tear their garments and they say, friends, we're mortal, just like you. Stop worshiping these gods and turn to the one true God who created all that you see, who has given you rain and sustenance and filled your hearts with joy. That's basically Paul's argument to them, right? So the interesting thing here is that Paul has to make his case in a different way because these folks aren't Jewish. If they were, he could start with God and God's promises and God's character that's been revealed to God's people over the years, and then he could work his way into the good news revealed in Jesus Christ. But here... He uses what we would call natural revelation, right? That God is revealed in his creation. And he uses this as the doorway argument to help the Gentiles begin to understand. 
What Judaism gives us that was different from all of the lesser worship of gods is, he's saying, there is one God, and he made everything. The bounty and beauty that creation reveals, it reveals the one God who loves us and cares for us. That's kind of the story he's saying here. And so as they're calming down the locals on this front, all of a sudden the Jews from Antioch and Iconium who don't, uh, don't believe what they're selling show up in town. So it's a kind of funny image that they've apparently followed Paul and Barnabas out to Lystra. Um, and so just like they did in Iconium, they begin working the crowd and saying, mm -mm, don't listen to what these folks are saying. Um, it's wrong and stand firm and what we've been telling you da, da 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 and so it becomes a thing and we're told that they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city believing that he was dead so this is quite a swing in circumstance right Paul went from being the god Hermes to whom the people wanted to offer sacrifice and pledge their devotion to a dangerous pariah that was stoned and left for dead This might be a good time to make the point that our circumstances are fleeting. <laughs> you know, as, as, as Charlie Brown used to worry about and talk about in his strip so much, sometimes you're the hero and sometimes you're the goat, right? And some days we wake up and we have a hero day, and some days we wake up and we have a goat day, right? And that's just the way it is. And you might not have changed at all. It just might be that your circumstances change. And it's why it's so important to be true to yourself in all your circumstances, because then you have a place to stand no matter how changeable the world around you is. Well, it turns out that Paul is not dead, luckily for all of us. The disciples come, the disciples who, who believe and who are and those who have been traveling with him come and they stand around his body that's lying on the outskirts of town. And we're told that Paul gets up. And the next day, he and Barnabas head out again, and this time for Derby. So that makes an interesting point. So did Paul and Barnabas spend the night in Lystra after they had stoned him and left him for dead? I mean, I'm thinking I don't wait till the next day to head out to Derby. I'm out of there, right? I'm not taking the chance that anybody else is coming. So they get up the next day, we're told, and they head to Derby. So you see Derby now on this end over here. We're, all, we're still in Galatia. See how all of these places we're talking about is in Galatia, right? All right. Uh, The disciples have some success in Derby, and we're told that they made many disciples. And then they return to Lystra, and then Iconium, and then Antioch. So they then reverse their, they've gone, they've hit all these places, they've made their disciples, and now they kind of back up and, and take themselves right on that same path back. And so you have to kind of wonder what the folks in Lystra thought when they saw Paul, who they stoned and left for dead, that he was still up and at it. Like he shows up back in town a few days later, maybe a week later. I don't know how long they spent in Derby. Um, but I wonder if he actually made more disciples in Lystra on his return trip than he did on the other one because, you know, that's got to be impressive. So once they return to Antioch of Pisidia, not Antioch of uh, Syria, we're told that their focus is now not on making new disciples but on strengthening the disciples that have already been made. They encourage them to hold fast to the faith, and they warn them that persecution is going to be a part of the package when you are doing this kind of work to bring about God's kingdom and to bring about the message of God's kingdom, right? Um, 
And so I want to take a moment and tie this to how we live into our discipleship now. We appropriately, and especially not just us individually, but here as this particular people of God here at St. Michael, right? We appropriately put a lot of emphasis on bringing people to a relationship with Jesus. There are more and more folks out there who were never raised in the faith. And there are folks who believe they are alone and they need to know that God is here and that his love for them is present among his people. So bringing those who don't know Jesus to know Jesus is an important part of our discipleship. And no matter how Episcopalian we are, we can't totally get away from that. Bringing people to Christ is part of the call, right? But there is a need to affirm and strengthen those who are already disciples. So as a community of faith, a lot of focus is on providing opportunities for you and for me to grow in our faith so that we will know God's care, that know um, that he is working his power in your life, um, that you'll have that strong foundation of trust in God that we talked about that will help you in the times of your persecution. And so that's why as a community of faith you see both. You see this emphasis on us trying to reach those who've never been reached before, who need to know this, and who need to have the love of God in their life. But then you also see appropriately the emphasis on those who already know God being strengthened and coming together in that faith so that we can more and more live into um, the people that God has created us to be. Yeah, I saw it. It's going to happen. That's okay. Y'all know all the places. I'll give it to you at the end again. So Barnab Paul and Barnabas choose leaders for these new communities of faith, and they pray with them. And then, thank you, Susan. So sweet. And then, the, oh, is it showing other pictures? Oh, I, you know, I've got it set to where it starts going through my photos after a couple minutes, and so that could be very embarrassing. So, I mean, not, I've got a beautiful family, but anyway, I'm sure I'd start hearing laughs. So, um, so they start choosing leaders for these new communities of faith, and they pray with them, and then they let them go, and that we tell, they're to, we're told that they let them go entrusting them to the Lord, which is really beautiful. So they head south toward the coast, I just love using my rector's pointer. So they come down from Antioch, and they come all the way to Perga, and they get on the boat, and they come back to Antioch of Syria, which, you know, we're talking the year 35, 40. This is perilous travel. All travel is perilous in 35 and 40. So this is a huge thing that they've been doing. Um, and so they get back to where they began their journey. And we're told when they arrived, they called the church together and related all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. Isn't that beautiful? He had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. So this opening a door of faith for the Gentiles doesn't mean that this is the very first time that a Gentile had come to faith. Because we have the um, uh, eunuch, you know, uh, earlier. We've got, you know, we've got other stories about Gentiles coming to faith before this time. But it does mean that out in the areas that are clearly Gentile territory, there are new communities of faith that have been planted that had no prior connection to a synagogue, that these are just standalone starting communities for faith of, in, in God through Jesus Christ, right? And that in these communities, all that mattered was that you believed in Jesus Christ. So it wasn't about, was your dad a Levite? Did you do this? La, 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 la. It's no. Do you believe the message that we're telling you about Jesus Christ? If you do, you're part of the family now, right? 
So this is the story of the first missionary journey of Paul, and it was a successful, very successful missionary journey, even though it was not without its trials, as we saw, and it changed the way that the new church understood its mission forever, because they had started close to home, and it kind of stayed there, you know, and so this whole, them getting on the boat and going to this whole other area to start doing this um, evangelization, once they got back and told the story of how successful this was and showed them how successful it was in themselves, the church caught fire and they're like, oh, okay, we get it. This is the stuff we're supposed to be doing, right? So it changed the way we stepped out from, from our center in Jerusalem from then on. Um, and so I'm going to finish by telling you that Wright, N.T. Wright, believes that Paul's letter to the Galatians is in fact a letter to these communities of faith in Antioch and in Derby and in Lystra and in Iconium, right? That when he writes his letter to the Galatians, these are the churches that he's writing to. So I just want you to hold that because I think it's a cool thing to see how other um, parts of Scripture, how some of those epistles are tied to what we're seeing as this unfolding story in Acts. You can kind of see where those two connect, right? And it, what would be really interesting is for you to read through the letter to the Galatians and, and see the things that Paul's concerned about for them, right? And then you're going to kind of get an idea with what these churches were struggling with. Um, and then so, that's the stuff that Paul addressed for them, right? All right. That is chapter 14, friends. Thoughts, questions, comments? Yeah. It is funny. It seems, you know, so here in Acts, what we'll see is we have baptism without the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we have the coming of the Holy Spirit without baptism, and then we have both, baptism and the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? And I would say we believe that um, the Holy Spirit comes in baptism. That's what we believe that we're... Um, empowered and filled in a way in baptism that's new, right? That's, that's that the sacrament itself is not just a, sh a show of what, of something, that it actually um, manifests the thing that we're talking about, right? So that's our belief in the church. Um, but I, I, I like that we have those messy baptism Holy Spirit stories in Acts because I think it keeps us from holding any one right way too tightly. Like, we, we, we can't hang our hat on that because if you do, the first thing I'm going to do is open Acts and show you where that, that, that's not the case, right? So, um, so I like that. I like that it's not, and, and so I guess I don't find it so surprising that Paul might not have yet been up to speed on how important it was to baptize the new members of faith and that perhaps it was folks that came around them behind them or perhaps it was even these new elders that they lifted up these new leaders were the ones that got to baptize the people in their faith and again maybe it's because they saw themselves they really saw their role as bringing the message and the news and maybe they just assumed someone else would be doing all that other stuff, and that that other stuff was really more a part of the pastoral relationship in that community versus my role is coming to just give you the story, right? Different gifts and graces. I think, um, so I'm sitting here at almost 55 years, right? So it's taken me 55 years to get to some of this, right? I think it all depends on where we are. It's harder when we're younger. But I think we spend a lot of years putting on layers of, accomplishment, image, you know, all, all the things that the world 
um, sends us the message is important to be able to fit in and be comfortable and be accepted and whatever fill in the blank of whatever it is that you're looking for that then you're trying to fill by doing those things right so I think we spend a lot of years doing that and then I think our work once we start re you know we kind of all get to this point where if that has been a main focus of our lives we start asking really is is that all this is is that what like you know did it? we start questioning having our lives set up that way um, and, and a lot of times it's, it's very unintentional. We just kind of find ourselves. We wake up one day and we've arrived at this place and we're like, really, did I imagine I was gonna be here? And is this the way I wanted to set it up? And why, why, you know, and I've only got this much more time left. Am I gonna use it doing this? Am I just gonna double down or do I need it, right? So, so I think a lot of our work, and you know, Richard Rohr's um, book, uh, Falling Upward, kind of deals with this, right, the that change in the second half of life. And I think a lot of our work, whether we start that, whether we're wise enough to start that when we're 20 years old or we're not wise enough to start it until we're 70 years old, at whatever point we get there, the job is to let all that stuff, all those accretions fall away so that we become the person that we were created to be. And that's the person we were when we came out, when we were God's beloved child in the beginning before we did anything right and before we did anything wrong. That's the person we're trying to get back to, right? So that's, a, I'm, I'm leading up, right? I'm taking you, sorry, to, to water a really slow way. But I think people who have found themselves and who are living authentically are just very attractive to other people. And other people who are hungry and want something, they're either eventually gonna ask you about that or even if they're not brave enough to ask you about it, they're gonna watch you enough to start trying to implement some of those things. So again, I don't think we're necessarily, and you might be, I don't think I'm called, and man, I'm a preacher, but I don't think I'm called to stand on a corner and, and shout messages about Jesus Christ and kind of get in people's face or kind of get, I don't think that's that. But I know, just because too many people have commented to me about it, that the fact that I live a life um, that trusts in God, that is grounded in Jesus Christ, that that's not a, not a struggle in the sense that I don't question that's how my life should be set up. It's a struggle in the sense that I'm falling and I get up and I make mistakes and some days are better days. Some days I'm more the, the person God created to me, me to be and some days I'm less the person God created me to be, right? We, we've all got that. But I don't question the fact that this is how I'm supposed to have my life set up. And so I have a lot of peace around that. And I think that's, that's not only attractive to others, I kind of envision us all in our place on the journey, and some people are behind me and some people are ahead of me, and I don't, that, there's no judgment around behind or ahead, but I feel like part of us is what we've already learned is to help people get to that learning themselves, to be um, mentors and assistants and people who embody that for them to continue their journey on the way. And I think part of it is to look forward and see these saints in our lives that already look like they've achieved so much more than us no matter where we are on the road. And we're like, man, I wanna be like them. And so I can't tell you how many times I still say, when I grow up, I wanna be just like her, right? Because you, you, I feel it, I feel it in their lives. And I think that's the beauty of the community of faith is that that's who we're supposed to be to one another. We're supposed to be helping each other become who we were created to be and continue moving towards that. Exactly. Exactly. So I would say that we do have people that are persecuted today. It just looks different, right? It's not as overt. 
but, but what is all the fight against all the levels of discrimination that we've been working, whether it's women getting rights, whether it's folks of color getting rights, whether it's um, folks who um, love people of the same gender getting rights, whether, you know, we, we've kind of, there, there are people that are, whether it's just even, not even by a category of being that you can't um, impact, but what if it's even that you're in an abusive situation, right? I mean, so I think people are persecuted in ways. Um, it just doesn't look like it was, right? So I will just say, and I understand from having a really interesting conversation with the rector that y'all talked about that, this, so I hope I'm not going to shock you when I say this, that God's not too caught up in whether you live or whether you die, right? Because regardless, you're in God. We say that in our funeral service every time we do a funeral. So, you know, whether you live or whether you die, you're in God, you know. So, so that's the deal. Yes, we hold on to our life, but that's not what we're called to do. I mean, we're called to hold that so loosely that living the life that we believe to be right, no matter what that costs us, is that we've got peace in knowing that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and that how we get treated in the midst of that is not up to us. We can't. And, and the first person to try and change anything always gets chewed up and spit out. And so what we remember is the second person, you know, because the second person came in and then they lasted, right? And they were able to do, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of people in history that we don't know because they were the first one to try it and they got chewed up and spit out and, and hurt but they were willing to do that because continuing to live was not the ultimate goal. Anything else? That's kind of a good one to go out on, huh? All right. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.